Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. On today's episode, we delve straight into the heart of the topic of modern dating apps themselves with one of the most important current voices on this issue, Nancy Jo Sales. Thank you. Hi. Michelle and I created this podcast. I knew our guest today was one of the people who would be on my dream list of whom to invite. Nancy Jo Sales is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, filmmaker, and producer. After growing up in Florida, she graduated from Exeter with her high school degree, Yale with a BA in literature, and Columbia with an MFA. In the 90s, Nancy Jo went on to work for People Magazine, New York Magazine, and Harper's Bazaar, before becoming a writer for Vanity Fair in 2000. She gained prominence and won awards with her celebrity profiles, and her article, The Suspects Wore Louboutins, became the basis for Sofia Coppola's movie, The Bling Ring. Nancy Jo published a book by the same name in 2013, followed in 2016 by her book, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. Her 2018 documentary on dating apps, Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age, is available on HBO Max or as an Amazon Prime rental. And then in 2021, she published Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno, which is equal parts memoir and social critique. But really, the year we need to start with is 2015, which is when Nancy Jo published a Vanity Fair piece entitled Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, which went viral and started important conversations about the cultural effects of dating apps. Nancy Jo, welcome to Strangers on the Internet. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. Could you start by telling our listeners about what you already saw as the negative repercussions of dating apps more than seven years ago? My first reaction, which continues to this day because the dating app companies still haven't fixed this, is the problem of age checks. Because I first heard about Tinder from a teenager, from a high school girl, because I was doing a story that led to my book, American Girls, for Vanity Fair, a story on social media and and girls in particular. At that point, when I was reporting this, it was probably 2013. Tinder had just, just been launched. It was just a few months after it had been launched. I had never heard of it. And I was one of the first people if not I maybe the first in a major publication to write about the adverse effects of social media on girls. And that was really my interest. So I'm interviewing this girl for this piece, which becomes a book. And she says, have you seen Tinder? And I said, no, what is Tinder? And I think she was 16 at the time. And she showed me on Tinder, she was talking to men in their, she was heterosexual. She was talking to men in their, well, they didn't have gay dating back then, I don't think men in their thirties. And I said, how is this possible? How are you doing this? She says, well, you just go on and you swipe. And she's showing me the whole thing. So this seemed really dangerous to me, you know, just obviously so dangerous that a young person without a lot of experience in the world of dating could become accessible to older people, older men who were not vetted 
we didn't know who they were or where they came from. And she was having conversations with them, some of which were, you know, suggestive in nature. Um, one of them had sent her non-consensually a, a nude photo of himself. So that's my that was my introduction to mobile dating, to Tinder when it first came out, was, okay, this is something that, whereas we're reading in the media how wonderful it is and they're lauding and celebrating these young tech entrepreneurs who are disrupting dating and putting them, you know, this happened a little while later on the cover of Forbes magazine, Sean Rad was on the cover, America's hottest app. Meanwhile, they're not looking at addressing or even thinking about the ways in which these platforms can cause harm to vulnerable people, including and it's just become all the more apparent as time has gone on after 10 years of, of these apps, the lack of age checks on children, the lack of uh, vetting of users who we know now from multiple studies and, and lots of research are sometimes people with a background of sexual assault, domestic violence. You know, there's the, the dating apps frequently make, you know, kind of, they know that these critiques exist, but they don't have to do anything about it because of Section 230, which is that controversial aspect of internet law that says that uh, they, these platforms can't be sued for what third parties do on them. So they don't really have a financial impetus to fix any of this. And in fact, they have a financial impetus not to because their business model is engagement, getting more people in the apps, getting more people using the apps. The numbers are, they're, they're God. And because the numbers translate to money. So that was what I saw from the beginning. And I don't really see that it has changed. You know, I, I hear in your intro that you're a consultant for these apps. And, you know, that's, that's totally something that they need. They need people like you to be consultants and tell them these things uh, that, that are wrong with them and that, you know, need to be addressed for the sake of people's safety and health and well-being, mental health even. But, you know, I, I, they, they have reached, uh, over the years I've become this kind of vocal critic of dating apps I never intended to be. It just kept sort of <laughs> evolving as my, you know, beat, which used to mainly be teenagers and kids, but it's kind of evolved to be mainly this for the last couple of years because I do think it's really urgent. I do. And I and I and they have asked me over the years to representatives of different apps, shall we say, have many have asked me to partner with them, or will you partner with us, or will you come into the fold and like help us? And but to me, and and this is not to to judge or critique anything anybody else does, because people have to do what they got to do and what they feel is right to do. But I always felt like if I did that, if I started taking money from Whitney Wolf heard who reached out to me and asked to partner with me on something at one point. And I said this in an email to her, we have this long email exchange where she says, you know, partner with us. And, and she's being very nice about it and everything, especially since she just appeared in my documentary film. And I don't think that, you know, <laughs> she was expecting the film that I made, not that I ever was not transparent about it, but you know, she said, Oh, partner with us. And I, I explained to her, you know, if I do that, how can I report truthfully on what I see as the, as the problems here. So that's sort of my history with them. 
uh, we'll, we'll talk later about uh, how it's not exactly match group that I've worked with. And I'll tell you in a, in a bit how I've actually been banned from all of their apps. But Michelle, please go ahead. Oh, okay. I'd like to hear about that. <laughs> well, I think your point is really valid and important about as a journalist, as a critic, you need to be able to be separated enough from the companies that you would be critiquing to be able to offer up a fair critique. And, and for good reason, because in fact, big tech or big dating as it relates to what you've been reporting on has at times reacted very strongly to your criticism. Two examples in particular stick out. First, you ended up in a very public back and forth with Tinder on Twitter after the 2015 Vanity Fair piece came out. And then just a few days ago, Match.com's chief scientific advisor, Helen Fisher, claimed you have basically no idea what you're talking about when you said in Nothing Personal, your memoir, that dating app operators are more interested in creating addiction to their products than finding love. Sounds like what somebody working in big dating would take issue with. So what do you think? Well, I thought it was really disappointing of the Atlantic because I, I do respect the Atlantic as a publication. And I, and I certainly do respect Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor in chief. We were, we were friends in the nineties. We sat near each other in our cubicles in New York magazine. We sort of came up together and he used to call me in those days, he used to call me the machine. That was his like nickname for me because I was very energetic and churning out lots of cover stories and stuff. So he knows very well who I am. And I would hope that the writer of the piece would know who I am because she, her name is Caitlin Tiffany and she writes on tech. I think, you know, she's been covering dating apps and stuff. So I would hope that she would know who I am because I think I've been part of the conversation and it's certainly very well known that match and Tinder attacked me. So I was disappointed that in a profile of someone who essentially works for Match, Helen Fisher. She's their scientific advisor, and she is paid by them for her work. I was disappointed that there was this kind of slap at my reputation without context and without any mention whatsoever of the fact that this person who works for Match works for a company that this person who she's being very demeaning about has reported on negatively for seven years and that this company has repeatedly attacked me and including on Twitter, there wasn't like a lot of back and forth with me on the Twitter thing in 2015. It was more Tinder tweeting at me more than 30 times in one night. I barely responded to any of it because it was insane. And it, and it was written about, and it was written about as this like corporate gaffe. Oh, did they, or didn't they show, you know, like do a bad thing for themselves as a company by attacking this person, you know, do they look bad to their users? No mention, no discussion of how it was a corporation, essentially. These are corporations using their public platform and their, muscle as a corporation to attack a journalist for reporting on their users. You know, when Helen Fisher says something like she doesn't know what she's talking about, that's so, it is so, it is so unilluminating a quote to give the reader because it doesn't take into account that she, meaning I, 
I'm a reporter who talks to people who use these dating apps. I don't just come out and I'm not like Helen Fisher and claim to be, you know, the last word on this quote unquote science. I, you know, and again, she works for the people who these work that she does benefits essentially because she justifies it, you know? So I, I, and, and celebrates it. I order who talk, who interviews people, hundreds of people, hundreds of users, as well as the, you know, heads of dating app companies and social scientists and people who work in the field of addiction and evolutionary biologists and all kinds of people. So like, that's the kind of thing that when you see it on the page and it's so clear from where I'm standing, what just happened, but you don't see that like people out there will necessarily know what just happened because they are doing it in such a way that you're not allowed to respond. You're not given the context. You're not given the respect of someone who has become a thorn in the side of this company in a very public way. It really makes you think, it really makes you think like what, I mean, I'm just to finish my thought, it really makes you think like, so what is, what is behind this? Why would they do this to me? The company, the magazine, Helen Fisher, why, 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 why would this gratuitous slap sort of occur? Why, what do you call that when that happens? So you to draw your own conclusions. But I think that one of the things that you could characterize it as is sexism because it's demeaning and degrading to a woman's credibility, a woman reporter. So I think that's a really interesting take. You know, that's exactly what I meant about the idea of you as a reporter, as a journalist, keeping your objectivity by not being a consultant to these industries versus, you know, Helen Fisher, who is, who works for Match.com. And so we certainly were glad on this platform to be able to give you a voice and be able to encourage our listeners to be critical thinkers about this, to understand who is the source and what degree of objectivity versus subjectivity might they have. I would say as well, you know, an article I had read about the whole back and forth with Twitter, this was a Slate article by Jacob Brogan. I found that it very much echoed this idea of, wow, Tinder seems to be taking this very personally for a company who's not a person, you know? And and so this idea of why are they taking it so personally? So when you say, is it them gratuitously slapping at you? I actually want to ask you, I mean, do you think it's gratuitous or do you think they're afraid of what you are bringing to light? Because when I watched your documentary, I felt like it made a very clear case for how, in fact, this very much, the dating apps very much act like an addictive service. I mean, I think that, I think that was a part of the film. The part on addiction was... I would say of any part of the film that was written about the most by, you know, different outlets and NPR covered it and CNN and everything. And that was definitely the part of the film that was written about, remarked upon the most, the part about addiction. Because Jonathan Bedeen, who invented the swipe, he's one of the co-founders of Tinder, told me on camera in the offices of Tinder very proudly about how they designed this swipe mechanic on the basis of something that's called operant conditioning, which is a, a, a way to, you know, control people's behavior through getting them addicted to, to something, to, you know, based on the findings of 
and studies by and experiments by a very controversial and weird psychologist from the 1970s named B.F. Skinner. So like, it's all in there. It's not like it's a secret and it was written about a lot. So it's just really, really what's gratuitous about it is like when that's all out there, but then the Atlantic says, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about, about all this. But then you just look at my film and I'm not the one talking. It is literally the person who invented this. And it's also Adam Alter, who's a, an NYU professor who writes about addiction. He wrote this great book called Irresistible. So, so it's not, she doesn't know what she's talking about. That's the part that I say is gratuitous and sexist because it's not based on anything that's real. It's just based on bias. That's what I think. And if you think, if the conclusion that you come to is that this, they have this kind of sexist slap at someone because they don't like what she's saying about their company, that that's still, it's still sexist because it's a way to, under, sexism is a way to discredit a woman's, uh, you know, discredit a woman and to undermine her authority in her saying something. And that's why I say it was gratuitous and sexist because it just felt like, why, why is this in here? Why, why is this, this? It didn't seem to serve any other purpose than that. Is what I'm saying about gratuitous. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I agree with you. They don't like me criticizing their company. Duh. I mean, okay. I have to say a lot of things that have been written about your work rub me the wrong way, and not me just too. things me coming too. from. No, I, no, I have to say that because. You know, and it's not just things coming from the app makers, which, like you're saying, you kind of expect on some level. But I feel like, and, and we'll get to that, but I feel like even what some journalists have said, including some female journalists, really... Well, I don't know if you're talking about the, are you talking about the review of my book in the New York Times, which... For example, that's one example. Yes, that's one example. You know, the New York Times, well... A review of my book, Nothing Personal, by someone who knows me, does not like me for reasons that are just silly, silly, silly social reasons dealing, having to do with friendships and, and people that we have as friends in common. And it's just a dumb, dumb thing. But as soon as they asked her to do that review, she should have said, I can't do that review because I'm friends with someone she had a falling out with, really good friends with them. And I've actually, you know. Anyway, so she should have never written that review. So then she writes it, and it goes in the and it goes in the New York. She's denied all this, by the way. Which, sorry, it's true. She writes it, and and you know, a New York Times, like a lot of books, don't get reviewed by the New York Times. And a New York Times review is kind of what people want because it can increase your book sales so much, but it can also tank your book sales sales if it's a bad review, and if it was a bad review that I felt was deserved based on the terms it set forth, then I would say, okay, well, she didn't like it. But number one, we had a history. And number two, it didn't accurately depict my book. It was a review that was, again, I felt very sexist and that it made it sound, I was, this sounded like I was some flibberty gibbet person who didn't know how to date and I just had never matured to the point where I really knew how to deal with men. And, and it wasn't that silly and sad. And that was kind of it. It didn't even mention, like not for one sentence, did it mention the fact that this was an investigation. It was, it was a memoir of my own 
experience on dating apps at a certain time in my life, a short amount of time where I was kind of investigating them and kind of got sucked into them as part of my investigation. But the investigative part of it, like if you just do word count, how much of this book is about me dating guys on Tinder versus how much of it is about research, study, interviews about how these dating apps are challenging for people and disrupting love, sex, and dating in ways that are making a lot of people very miserable. You didn't have any of that. So it didn't treat me like an investigator, like an investigative reporter, which Judith Newman knows that I am. So again, I, I look at these things and I wonder, okay, so what is going on here? Why, why is this so threatening on some level for people to, (laughs) to think the obvious? Because I think a lot of times what I'm saying is the obvious, which is that these platforms are not working, especially not for women, especially not for people of color. And there's a lot of trans people who would agree with that too, that these things are not working, that they are in fact harming a lot of people. Why is that so threatening to these institutions? Well, we know why it's threatening to the dating app companies, but I've had long discussions with many people who are on these apps and use them and hate them and say to me, why why do they keep attacking you for saying what we know is true? I don't know the answer. I mean, I know that, you know, it's corporations versus a journalist. I, I know there's that, but the wider you know, rush to defend these apps, especially by people who like have never been on them, you know, older boomer types who, you know, and I'm like on the edge of boomer Gen X. I'm like in the, on the cusp, but um, I've never really felt like a boomer, but I do see a lot of boomer attacks on me for this. And then in the beginning, it was also millennials because they were like, oh, you're just old. You don't get your Luddite. You're old. You don't get the stuff us kids are doing. But after 10 years of swiping, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millennials I've talked to and also have written me emails just about how these things have basically ruined their lives, a lot of them, in ways from being sexually assaulted on these apps to just becoming numb from a search for love and connection that's just not part of this experience for many people. I mean, I think, and you can tell me what you think, but I think some of what we're seeing is just the extreme amount of just world bias that people have, right? Where they want to think if I do things right, or if I go on the dating apps uh, and and I do everything correctly, this isn't going to happen to me. This happened because you were dating younger men. This happened because, you know, you were not careful enough. And really, I mean, whatever the intention was of uh, Judith Newman, that quote where she says in her interview, sales takes the complaints of women to heart, but not men's. Women who want casual sex are free spirits. Men who want casual sex are scumbags. Women who want real relationships are being cheated of men. And men who want them, where are they? Virtually non-existent here. And this seems to be blaming you for the lack of relationship-minded men on dating apps or or saying that you're you're making that up. Um, And so whatever personal thing was going on, that hurts a lot of women to say that. Thank you for bringing that up because all of that is such a mischaracterization of my work, my book, 
And it it is exactly as you say, blaming me for just not knowing how to use the apps. I would, you know, for anybody who doubts this, I would look up some Facebook pages called Are We Dating the Same Guy? Are We Dating the Same Guy? Are these Facebook pages that have sprung up just in the last like six months? I just did a piece about them for The Guardian and it hasn't come out yet because, you know, I was waiting for this to happen. When are women going to fight back against this broken dating culture? And they sort of are in these Facebook pages called Are We Dating the Same Guy? They're all over the country. The one in New York, I think, has between 50 and 100,000 users. They are in every city, big and small, and now they're traveling. They're they're expanding to where you see them. There's one in London, and there's ones in other parts of the world. And what they are are women dating app users talking to each other about exactly the kinds of things that I've been reporting on for 10 years or more. And that you will find in my book, Nothing Personal, and that you will see in my film, Swipe Talking Up in the Digital Age. Now, it's out there on social media, on Facebook. It's almost like all of these women could be or would, would have been my sources, because these are the people I have been talking to. They are talking about the ways in which dating app culture is demeaning, degrading, impossible. And a lot of it has to do with the behavior of men on these apps. And the conclusions I come to in my book after a whole lot of research is that these apps actually promote a lot of this behavior. It's not that they invented it. I say it a million times. It's not that they invented misogyny. It's not that they invented rudeness or one night stands or any of that that people may or you know have issue with. It's that they exacerbated it. It's that they made it easy for men to mistreat women. That what was already there in our culture in terms of men's callousness in toxic masculinity and their uh, use their and their objectification, commodification of women was exacerbated and put into overdrive by these apps. And it seems really obvious to me. And it's not because I have some sort of personal problem with men that I think this, you know, just look at, are we dating the same guy? Just go on these groups. It's everything from, you know, ostensibly it starts out, these groups were formed because women wanted to say, are you dating this guy? Because what the apps do is they make it easy for people to have multiple partners at the same time and hide that and be clandestine about it. And this isn't just single guys, it's married guys too. And I have gotten so many emails, I don't know how many, from married women who have found out that their married spouse is cheating on them using these apps. It just happens constantly. And it's a real problem. So they talk about the cheating. They talk about the lying. They talk about the the ghosting. I was also made fun of years ago for saying, you know, that ghosting was like a really big deal and a really big problem. You know, millennial culture at that time kind of dismissed that and kind of made fun of me like, oh, ghosting, you just don't get it. We don't care. We just ghost. Well, now there's, and not all millennials thought that, but there was this one piece in particular that sort of made fun of me for saying ghosting is wrong and it's hurtful. There's now studies on ghosting that say that the accumulated, the aggregated 
suffering that we feel from being ghosted. It's like a sort of long-term romantic COVID where you, you just feel bad over and over and over again. It's not okay. The norms and standards of dating were never fair to women, you know, and were never equal, but they've just been blown apart, basically. And this new kind of behavior in the realm of dating because of these platforms is incredibly hard for many people to deal with. And I, it's not that I, no, as I'm agreeing with you when you say like, this felt like this very personal attack, like you personally had some inability to date, which is what they always do to women. You know, like, uh, why are you still single? You know, that it had nothing to do with like misogyny. My book is about misogyny, nothing personal. If you came to, if you had to say, what is this book about? And I had to say one word, it's about misogyny. It's about misogyny in the realm of dating. It's about misogyny in tech. It's about the intersection of misogyny and big tech via dating apps. That's what it's about. But like this review in the Times had not one word about that, you know? And so I do, when these things come up, I do feel, I, I used to not care at all. And I used to just be like, oh, well, what an asshole for, for writing that about me or about my work. But I care more and more about it. And it upsets me more and more. It does. Because when Helen Fisher says something like, she doesn't know what she's talking about, that makes it, meaning me, as the critique of dating apps, it makes it all the much harder for people who are on these apps and not finding love after 10 years and not finding these promised relationships, which really don't happen for most people. Like the data that we do have from Pew Research and stuff says 12% of Americans, 39% of dating app users overall, those aren't huge numbers. And people will say, oh, but I know my cousin got married on Tinder. You know, that's not data. We all know somebody who got together because of a dating app. And I will say two things about that. Number one, that's not data. That's an anecdote. Number two, like the dating app companies don't do surveys of their own, or maybe they do, but they don't tell us on actually how many of these things, how many of these matches are leading to real relationships and marriages. They don't tell us because I suspect it would not support their companies and their promises. But the other thing about that, like, that's not the end. Just because somebody gets into a lasting relationship, and when we say lasting, how long is lasting? Like, we don't know. This is all very new. And number two, even if there's marriages, which are precipitously dropping, and, and that has to do with a million factors, but they never talk about dating apps. Why not? When it has given everyone, like, multiple options, multiple choices. How is this not factoring in? To a drop in marriage. It just seems like really like that's one thing where you have to say like, where is your common sense? Okay. But that's not the end of your relationship with dating apps when you get married. Unfortunately, as I just said, a lot of people on dating apps are married or are in relationships. So it's not like, oh, but you must be wrong. And this must be okay because so-and-so got married. Yeah. And then Six months later or six years later, she's feeling like something's up and she's checking his phone and she finds out he's on Tinder hitting up 18 year olds and she messages me and tells me that there needs to be actually, this is all, this is reporting that I get from talking to users, but there really, then there, there have been studies on dating apps 
that are supporting now a lot of what I've been saying all along. But there needs to be a study on the use of dating apps in relationships and the dissatisfaction and dysfunction about how dating apps are affecting relationships, not dating where you get to meet the person. I'm talking about after the relationship begins, what happens then? Because you're still addicted to the app. It's like smoking. It's like the neural pathways in your brain still like the, the dopamine rush of getting matched, even though you walked down the aisle and said, I do. They, they, your, your brain still remembers that rush of the matching and that excitement of talking to somebody new. So I really think that that is an unexplored field of study that, you know, I've reported on, but I really think there needs to be a study study, like an academic study where people really look at that. How are these apps affecting relationships? Thank you, Nancy Jo. You've said so much there, and we have a number of follow-up questions for you. In fact, we, we specifically wanted to talk about things like the Are We Dating the Same Guy group, which, as you said, those are groups that were designed to check, you know, is the person I'm dating who might be saying they're exclusive to me dating anyone else? But people can find out not only that, but also what kind of appalling behavior some of these people on the dating apps might be engaging in, and they're warning other people. And also, you know, you mentioned some of these personal attacks on you or, or on women for how they make sense of the dating apps or how they use the dating apps. But actually, there were a couple of men quoted in your documentary and in your article that I wanted to, to quote to bring up to our readers. So in the Swipe documentary, the founder of Hinge, Justin McLeod, so male, noted that the majority of women are looking for relationships, whereas the majority of men are looking for hookups. So in heterosexual relationships, that's going to be a fundamental mismatch that we're seeing play out on the apps. And in your Vanity Fair article, you also quoted the psychologist David Buss as saying, apps give people the impression that there are thousands or millions of potential mates out there. And at least as far as heterosexual dating goes, he said, one dimension of this is the impact it has on men's psychology. When there's a surplus of women, or even just a perceived surplus of women, the whole mating system tends to shift towards short-term dating, and that's just due to supply and demand. So he stated, men don't have to commit, they pursue a short-term mating strategy. Men are making that shift, and women are forced to go along with it in order to mate or date at all. So it's getting at the point that men can drive dating expectations so long as there are many women available to them. And something I was wondering is, what do you think about things like the are we dating the same guy social media group or other similar kinds of groups that pop up? Because if, if men are being put on blast for bad behavior out on those apps, does that make women less available to them specifically, to the men who are engaging in these appalling behaviors? And so in that case, might that encourage men to act more in accordance with what women want? What do you think? Well, thank you for actually reading my work, first of all, and actually knowing what it says. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And actually quoting it and you know, saying what it is saying, because very often people don't do that with my work. They make assumptions about me, or about what this must be, or they just read, you know, 
this very biased review in the New York Times or something, and they don't even know what I'm actually saying or who I've. And actually- in this case, it's what men who you are quoting are saying as well. Yeah. So it's really not well, you. And that Tinder article that got, you know, that went viral and caused such a big stir in 2015, it ends with a guy who's essentially a fuckboy, right? He's he's essentially become a fuckboy through the availability of this technology. And he was interesting to me because, I remember his name was Michael, and he was interesting to me because he was on internet dating, online dating before, he was doing like Craigslist and stuff before, and OkCupid online before the apps even came along. He was a bit of an older millennial. See, because my critique of all this does not start with Tinder. It goes back, like my investigation, if you will, into how online dating has affected us as a society, has affected gender roles, has affected gender equality, and all of these things. It actually goes back to the beginning of online dating in the 90s, in 1995, when Match was launched. I believe it was 1995. So this guy, Mike, had been on these things for a while. And he essentially became, you know, like a fuckboy, which is interesting because after that first article, Tinder article came out, there was actually a piece in one of the feminist websites like Bustle or one of them saying like, she doesn't even know what a fuckboy is. That's not a fuckboy. That's not what it means. It was like, well, yeah, it does because I talk to young women and that's what they say. And now there's like fuckboy island. And now there's like, I mean, it's a word. It's a word. And it has, no matter where it started, it has come to mean this kind of guy who, you know, it's like a womanizer, but even worse, because he has no relationships. It's just like, he's just using tech. It's a guy who's using technology to use women uh, for sex without any relationship or even any courtesy or like kindness or flirting or just very, very callous. And, but this is just another example of how, they will like take anything to say that that's not right when it demonstrably is right. So anyway, this guy, Mike was a fuck boy. Um, you have to really have to wonder like, who is this threatening and why, why is why to, for me to say, this is not working for people. That's what they tell me. And this could also be very dangerous for our society. This is what I'm hearing from experts and stuff. Why is this so threatening? And why do I become the person who must be destroyed <laughs> or something? I must be stopped. It's ridiculous. It's actually ridiculous. So when there's like so much evidence that people are so dissatisfied with dating apps and um, there was a quote from Mike in that piece where he says, it's too easy. It's just too easy. Like it's not exciting. It's not challenging. It's just too easy to go boom, boom, boom. Another guy in the piece says it's like seamless but you're ordering a person. Now that's a quote that's been quoted so many times. It seems like it was always there, but it's from my piece. And, and yeah, so these young men were actually supporting agreeing with what David Buss, the evolutionary biologist, psychologist said, which is that this is not, look, a lot of people don't like evolutionary biology or psychology. They say that it has been often used in gendered ways to create more gender inequality. I, I fully support you know, looking at everything that's done in any, any realm, journalism too, and saying, was this appropriate or inappropriate or cool or not cool to do that? But hey, we have evolved. 
whether what, no matter what you think of the science of evolution and how it's been used and misused, we have evolved. There are things we can chart back and say, we used to do something this way, now we do it this way. And so I think that some of these people who study this might know something about it because they've spent their lives studying it. And so I'm open to hearing what any of them have to say. And when they say something like that, like David Buss said, and it lines up exactly with what I'm hearing from the scores of people, young men, women that I interviewed for that article, that's when I say, okay, these two things seem to line up and there seems to be some truth to this. To David Buss saying, well, when there's too much access to women, we're talking heterosexual dating and mating, men just like, like sleep with a lot of women. They don't feel like they have to settle down. And then I talked to someone like Mike who says, it's too easy. Like, I don't want to settle down because it's just too easy to get one. I'll just get another one. You know, that's when I say, okay, there's something going on there and it's making it very difficult for women to get for, for heterosexual women we're talking about now who want relationships, which is most of them. And by the way, Justin McLeod of hinge, he's the founder of hinge. He in 2016, after my Tinder article came out in 2015 in 2016, hinge did a big survey, their own survey. This is when they were still an independent company. They've now been sold to match. So when you go on hinge, you're on another match app. But this was when he was still independent. He was like a Harvard Business School graduate. He's a very nice guy. I think that he was appalled to find out that there was so much user dissatisfaction when he read my article. And so he did his own survey. I think it was like tens of thousands of users. And they expressed their dissatisfaction. This is in 2016. This is six years ago. And we're still talking about the same stuff that hasn't changed. It's only gotten worse. And you can look it up online. I, I mean, he talked about it in 2016 and he, his whole thing was, we're going to fix all this. He was trying to be responsible. He said, she was right. He's one of the few people that ever said I was right. And he's the head of a dating app company. And he, cause he did his own research and he wanted to do the right thing. He said, she's right. My users say 80% of them want relationships and they haven't found one. They're being treated callously. They're being ghosted. People are swiping on dates People are swiping just to be on the app. They're not even ever, they're having long conversations that go nowhere and never lead to anything, you know? And this is one of the problems of these apps too, is that they, they kind of, that's a, a low grade problem, but it's still very taxing on people over time. There are these conversations that go nowhere and you're putting in all this labor and it is labor because you're working for the company. You're driving up, you're firing up their algorithms, you're driving up their numbers. So it is labor in a sense. And that's in my film. That's discussed in my film as well. So he said, oh, well, God, we're going to change all this stuff. And I was like, great, that sounds fantastic. How are you going to do it? And they tried a few things. And I don't think any of these things really worked, but he tried. And then he sold to match. <laughs> and now, he, now I don't know if he's still, I haven't checked lately, so I don't know if he's still the CEO or whatever, but I know he sold his company to match eventually. the next episode for part two of our thought-provoking interview with Nancy Jo Sales, which will pick up with the question of why dating apps are making it so difficult for researchers to gather independent data on them, 
We'll get more deeply into the topic of why many straight men shun serious relationships these days and why internet culture has a chance of changing with Gen Z. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. Know the. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone.